Welcome to Victory Christian Center. You're about to hear from our senior pastor, Pastor Stefan Schlugel, as he brings a message to the church on a Sunday service. Today is uh, the sixth session uh, on the subject of end times. We call the, the series End Times Revealed Through Bible Prophecy. And the subtitle of today's message is The Second Coming of Christ. And as I said, we have journeyed through this uh, series of messages. Uh, and we've probably got one or two more uh, sessions to come. And then we'll wrap up and talk about other things. But uh, we are doing all of this to give us a greater understanding of what our future holds and certain events that will take place. We believe in the not-too-distant future and then what it looks like beyond that. Last Sunday, we did a little flyover uh, <laughs> A little flyover. It was quite a flight, wasn't it? A little flyover. Uh, the seven-year Great Tribulation period, uh, which is covered in the book of Revelation, um, in some 15 chapters there from chapter 4 to uh, the early part of chapter 19, we did a flyover. Uh, it was a pretty uh, heavy-duty session, and I see that we've all survived it. We managed to pick ourselves up again afterwards, but remembering that if you're born again, you're not a part of that on the ground. <laughs> We're watching things from heaven. And so really for us as believers, end times is all good news all the way. Uh, not a moment should be spent on being afraid or being fearful. And then sometimes people have said, look, this end time thing, I'm not really sure if I'm all that excited over it because I've got a life to live. I've got a, this to do and a that to do. Let me tell you, if your life's good now, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely uh, you know, pleased for you, but the life to come will be better. All right. The things that God has prepared for those that love him will be better than what we have now. It'll be absolutely wonderful and fantastic. So with that, uh, I'm just thrilled that we're together again. Let's open the word this morning. You got the scriptures in your outline. We also want to welcome our online audience. We also have an outline available for you just below your screen on, uh, uh, on the YouTube channel there. Download that for yourself and uh, now or later, and then let's get into the Word. And I'm going to start reading this morning from the book of Revelation chapter 19. Remember last week we finished uh, in chapter 19 in the early part, and I want to pick up here uh, from chapter 19 and verse 11. I want to read right through to verse 21. So it's a lengthy reading, and uh, by the time I've read and I look up, I still want you all to be here. So don't let anybody go home because we've got a long Bible reading going on. All right, here we go. Uh, here is uh, John speaking. John the Apostle he says, I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His, aims were, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So we are speaking about Jesus Christ here. You will note that in many translations, the good translations, uh, the, the word his, him, is written in capital H. That's reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, he's also called the Word of God. Verse 14, it says, The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now that's us, all right? That's the saints. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierce, fierceness and wrath of God, 
and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, uh, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, uh, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped or worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All right, so Revelation chapter 19. Uh, amazing passage here that speaks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we've said all the way along that the most significant event of end times is the second coming of Jesus Christ. All right, we know he's already been here once but he's coming again. And he's coming together with his saints uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Um, and it tells us here that Jesus rides on a white horse. Um, and for those of you that are animal lovers, there's good news, there are animals in heaven, all right? Uh, and, uh, but of course, we're not going to spend all that much time there. We've just been there for seven years. We're coming back to the earth, okay? And uh, the Bible says that all the saints also accompany him on white horses. And we've got a couple of scripture references there in the outline from Zechariah 14 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where it tells us that uh, when Christ returns, all the saints are with him, all right? Um, so when we say all the saints, uh, we need to be clear what that means. It means all the Old Testament saints who had a uh, you know, who, who uh, uh, will come with him. All the New Testament saints that have lived since Christ to today or up to today. And then all those of us that have been raptured seven years earlier uh, before the tribulation period began, we're all coming with him. All right. And uh, now I should note, and this is kind of in brackets, if you like, that some tribulation saints... Um, whether they, you know, the tribulation saints that are coming with him, they've either been martyred or they've been raptured. They're also coming with him. But there will be some tribulation saints, believe it or not, that will actually survive the, the period of the great tribulation and will be alive when Jesus Christ returns. And we'll make reference back to that uh, uh, in just a little while. Furthermore, all the holy angels are with Christ. So you can imagine that this is like, this is like a massive movement of individuals, uh, both human beings in our glorified state, um, the angels of God all following Jesus Christ to come back to this earth. Um, and uh, we'll describe what that looks like very shortly, but I would like to ask the question and then give a, a summary of a few answers. Uh, and the question is this, why is Jesus Christ returning to earth? Why is he doing that? Uh, very quickly, this is a summary. This is not all the full reasons, but it's certainly most of them. Number one, to fulfill all Bible prophecy concerning his second coming. 
All right, once the word is written, it must come to pass. And it will come to pass. And like God's not laboring, it's, for God, it's all, it's all easy. It will come to pass. Then secondly, to judge the living and the dead. And uh, we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that when, he, when at his appearing, he will judge the living and he will judge the dead. And again, shortly, we will, uh, to some extent, describe what's that, what that looks like. Then number three, to rescue the Jewish people from Antichrist. Remember, for those of you that were part of previous sessions that we talked about, that in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, meaning after three and a half years, Antichrist will deceive the Jewish nation. In fact, he's already deceived them, and uh, now he will turn against them. He will set up his uh, image, which is called the abomination of desolation. Uh, he will set that up in the temple there, in the Holy of Holies, and he will demand to be worshipped. And of course, at that stage, the Jewish people realize that he's, a, he, he's an imposter, he's a liar, uh, and, and they turn against him while he turns against them big time. Uh, and he will make war against them. Um, and of course, in the end, Jesus Christ will return to rescue the Jewish people uh, from the Antichrist and actually from all the armies of the world that have gathered together to wipe Israel and Jerusalem off of the map, so to speak. So furthermore, point number four, Jesus is coming back to remove the Antichrist and the false prophet from the earth. We've just read in verse 20 uh, of uh, Revelation 19 that when Jesus returns fairly quickly early on in the peace, he will catch the Antichrist who is called the beast in that passage there. He will catch the false prophet and he will throw them into the lake of fire. Now, somebody might say, well, is that hell? And we say, no, it's not. Hell is a different place. And in one of the future sessions, we will describe the difference between hell and the lake of fire. Then... Furthermore, point number five, uh, Jesus is coming to slay the kings and their armies at Armageddon. Um, and again, there's some fairly specific detail given in regards to what that will look like. Uh, and we will touch on that very shortly. Then number six, he's coming to remove the wicked from the earth. To rid the earth of all wicked people, uh, putting down rebellion, doing away with rebellious people. Then number seven, he's coming to set up his literal kingdom on the earth. We call it the millennial reign of Christ because initially it will last for a thousand years. Uh, and we will describe what that looks like in one of the future sessions. And then finally, he's coming to rule and reign as king in his literal kingdom together with his saints. If you're a saint, why don't you wave your hand at me? Okay. And uh, praise God. And uh, so we are coming with him. He's coming to set up his literal kingdom on the earth. He will be the king of kings and already now is because all the kingdoms of this world have already become the kingdoms of our Christ, but a lot of them don't know it yet. All right. He's coming to be the ruler supreme over the whole earth to rule and reign, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and we will rule and reign with him, we the glorified saints. Now, I forgot to mention before, and this is just a detail, that when Jesus is coming back and all the saints with him, that also includes the 144,000 Jewish Messianic believers. We're all coming back with Christ. Now, let's have a look at Jesus' grand a magnificent entrance uh, into the earth. Now, you remember when Jesus came the first time, he came quite quietly 
and uh, quite humbly. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Yes, there was a star, and that star was kind of significant and so forth, but compared to what's coming when he returns, there's virtually no comparison between those two comings in terms of, in terms of the style and in terms of, of, of people that will know about it. So here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east to the west and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, there you go, right there. You know, when, when you're out at nighttime and you see lightning, boy, you certainly see it, don't you? Uh, in fact, even if you had your eyes closed, you would see that there's light going on. So it'll be quite a spectacular sort of a deal. Uh, verse 27, for where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Uh, that is speaking about uh, the battle at Armageddon, just very briefly, uh, where all the eagles and all the vultures, everything comes together to eat the flesh of all the people that will be wiped out in that one single battle. All right. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation in those days. Now, we've just had seven years of tribulation finished. After the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So it'll now be pitch black. And depending on where people are around the world, it'll be pitch black. Uh, it'll be pitch black everywhere because the sun will be darkened. And in another part of the earth, it'll be dark anyway because it's nighttime there. And then for those that it's nighttime, the, 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 the moon will not give any light. It'll be pitch black. Um, and then, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Great glory. So you see the difference here between the two comings. He will make a magnificent entrance into the world. Uh, the second coming of Christ will be highly visible and very spectacular. Every eye of those on the earth will see him. And we, the resurrected believers, will be with him. We will obviously be with him. We will see him. Um, Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, it says, Behold, which means look, behold. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. And even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And all the tribes of the earth, of people that are still alive on the face of the earth, that have survived the great tribulation, and they will look up and they will mourn, they will, some of them will tear their clothes. It's like, oh no, it's true. What those Christians have been telling us, it's true. What those 144,000 Jewish believers have told us as they evangelized, it's true. What the two witnesses have spoken about in the city of Jerusalem, it's been televised around the world, it's true. Jesus Christ is coming. There will be some believers alive on the earth at that time, 
And they will obviously to them, it, they know it's true, but they will actually see it. And actually for them, it'll not be a huge surprise because they would have learned the scripture. If they got saved during the tribulation period, they would have learned the scriptures and they would realize and understand that if they work their way back to the time of the rapture of the church, which will be noticed, which will be a big deal, they know that seven years later, Jesus Christ will return. And that's why it says, look up for your redemption draws near. They will be able to work it out very closely, uh, like almost like literally within days, so to speak, because seven years is seven years. So even those who pierced him will see him. Now, we know that it's the Roman soldiers that pierced him. They pierced his hands with the nails. You can't hardly call them nails. They were massive steel bolts that they ran through his hands and through his feet to hang him on the cross. And then they took a spear and pierced him into the side. But actually... God charged that crime of all crimes against the Jewish people. And that is the reason why they've committed that crime, because it was the Romans were really instigated by the Jews to hang Jesus on the cross. Remember when Pilate tried to let the man go, but they said, no, crucify him. So those, even though those people, the Romans over here, physically pierced him, but spiritually God charges that sin against Israel. And that's why things haven't gone well for Israel ever since that time. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was wiped to the ground. The, the Jewish people have been scattered across uh, the world. But of course, we know that there is a regathering, and we know that God is merciful, and we know that they will come into salvation. We'll touch on that very shortly. So they will also see him. They will most certainly see him because Jesus will physically and literally come to the Mount of Olives, which is just a, a short sort of one of the mountains there in Jerusalem, sort of just slightly away from the Temple Mount. Uh, that's where he will physically land. If I can use that expression, it's like talking like about an aeroplane, you know, when the plane flies, you know, the plane lands. Well, Jesus will fly. We will fly with him, uh, even though we're riding on a horse, and uh, he will literally land on the Mount of Olives that will split in two, three directions and, uh, and so forth. So in Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 9, um, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. It's the day of his literal second coming. It's not the day of the rapture that was seven years earlier. This is the day of his coming. It comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy it's sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened uh, in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Because we've already read that before in Matthew's Gospel 24. This is just uh, reiterating the same thing in the Old Testament here. And God says, uh, uh, He says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the, uh, of the terrible. I will make a mortal man more rare than fine gold and a man uh, more than the gold wedge 
of Ophir. Just to say again what we've already said, and you're all sitting real quiet, but this is really heavy duty here, guys. This is like, this is amazing. As I say, as I say when I was restudying all of this, uh, and each time I restudied, I get a, a deeper, fresher level of understanding to help me to connect the dots together and everything. And if you've been listening um, uh, in, for the, to the previous sessions and you paid attention, I, can I recommend that you know more than what many, many Christians know around the world, because in some quarters, th these truths are not taught. All right? Yet, the question is, if we look at the Bible, and virtually a quarter of it is prophetic passages, Bible prophecy, we can't just say we will ignore a quarter of the Bible. We've got to read it. We've got to study it. We've got to know what it says, so we can prepare for the future. So, at the second coming... The first advent, and the word advent means coming, Jesus came as the Savior of the world. And we're very sure about that, and we're very clear. And, and many of you, if not most of you that are in the auditorium here, and many of you that are watching uh, this, uh, this uh, live stream uh, and later on de demand, you know that Jesus Christ came as the Savior of the world, but you've got to receive him. Remember, salvation is not automatic. Then at his second coming, he's coming is the judge of the world, very clearly. He will remove and destroy its sinners from it. We've just read that. He will destroy its sinners from it. In other words, he will take out the sinners from the earth that are remaining. Now remember, was it a quarter or a third of the world's population has already been killed during the seven-year tribulation? And then other disasters have gone on, and the world's population has already been reduced, but it'll be whittled way down um, because God will take out the wicked. Um, and uh, we'll read the scripture here in Matthew chapter 24 that some of you know very well, where it says that one will be taken and one will be left. And um, some of you have wondered whether you will be one that will be taken or whether one, you'll be the one that will be left. Well, we'll speak about that in just a moment, but let me tell you, if you are thoroughly born again, you were taken seven years earlier, because this passage here in Matthew chapter 24 is not speaking about the rapture. It is speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ literally to this earth, his visible coming, and at that stage, he will take the wicked from the earth. Um, Jesus will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Um, and uh, as I say, we've just read that. He will make mortal man on earth as rare as fine gold. Now, that's an interesting passage. But when you think about, at the height of the world's population, as it is now, and even going on a little ways, however long it'll be before the rapture will take place, all the Christians are taken out, so the world's population will be reduced. Then the seven-year tribulation, and we've read that by the time those judgments begin to happen, when the seals are opened that the book of Revelation speaks about, when the trumpets are blown, and when the bowls are poured out, the world's population will be reduced down Many, many people will be killed 
but many, many people will be saved and uh, many of those will be killed and martyred and some of those are raptured. Um, and, uh, and so there's a reducing down of the world's population. And then what's left when Jesus returns and he takes out all the wicked and he takes out all those nations that are gathered together at the battle of Armageddon, it really only leaves the Jewish nation and the believers around the world, people that might have recently got born again and haven't been killed, haven't been found, haven't been exposed or something. And you, you, you can imagine that mankind in population will be trimmed down. And he's saying here, it'll, it'll make mortal man, natural man, as rare as gold. It's like, you know, gold you really got to look for it, otherwise you don't find it. Don't, don't stumble over it. And if you search the earth for a mortal man, there would have been a massive reduction in the world's population because God will take out all the wicked and he will only leave the righteous and the Jewish nation. Uh, and uh, as I said, there's still a, a little bit of um, vagueness for me in terms of what exactly that looks like, um, but uh, uh, the word's clear. He will make mortal man rare than fine gold and a man more than a wedge of gold. Now, why would that be? Because most of the armies that gather together at the Battle of Armageddon will be men and they will all be wiped out. Now, because nowadays, and I'm still trying to get my head around this, you know, you've got men and women in the army. You know, I'm a bit old-fashioned with these things. You know, I reckon the bloke ought to fight for his family. But, you know, if women want to do that, it's fine. I'm not speaking against it. I'm just saying I'm still trying to get my head around this thing. But let me tell you that most of the men, uh, where the kings of the earth are coming together with their armies, they will be men and they will be gone. So that's why mortal men, as in human beings, will be rare and men will be rarer still because a lot of them will be taken out. Only saved people, uh, including the Jewish people, will be left on earth. Matthew 24, verse 27. Let's describe that now when it speaks about that one will be taken, one will be left. For as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that coming is the second coming of Christ. Not speaking about the rapture. The rapture's already been. Um, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away and questioned who was taken away. And the answer is the wicked people were taken away. Noah and his family were lifted up in the flood, but they came back down. And they were left on the earth. The wicked were taken away. That's very significant. All right. The flood came and took them all the way. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Who is the one that's taken? The wicked person is taken. And who is the one that's left? The righteous person. The one that's saved. The, the, the person that got saved somewhere during the tribulation, either early, managed to survive, or later on in the peace, that person will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. 
One will be taken and the other left. And uh, if the statistics are anything to go by, and we can't read a great deal more into it, but it's like, you know, half and half of those that are still left. Uh, um, it'll be an, an, an interesting scenario. Now, in um, the Gospel of Luke, in the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, it says two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. They will be like a precision cut made between those who are saved and those who are not saved. And the angels of God, all of them which have come with Christ, will snatch out the wicked and destroy them and only leave the righteous people. And let me back up again uh, where it says in those explanation before the previous scripture that he will make mortal men on earth as rare as fine gold. Now, we are no longer mortal. We, the born-again believers, have been raptured. Our redemption is complete. We are already in our glorified bodies. Um, where Paul says in Corinthians, this mortality will take on immortality. This corruption will take on incorruption. So we are in our glorified bodies. But the men that are left on the earth, even saved people, will still be in their natural bodies. And they will be mortal men, whereas we are already glorified men. You see the difference between the two? And in respect of that, and I'm already getting ahead of myself because I do want to speak about the millennial reign of Christ and what all of that looks like, uh, and, and, and where it says that we will rule and reign with Christ. People are saying, who are we going to rule over? Well, natural men that are left on the earth that will continue to get married, have families, have children, and population will re-increase again natural man. We will rule. The Bible says that Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. Because here's what's interesting. Whilst the indication is that most of the ones that are left, if not all, are saved people, they will have children, and those children don't automatically get saved. How many of you know that? Uh, particularly if there's any kind of uh, you know, neglect going on where the parents don't pass on their faith to the children, then you get unsaved kids growing up, and they will bring forth unsaved kids. And next minute you've got the world's population increasing. Longevity will increase vastly because death will not operate during that time. And we will return to the, to the age where we had in the book of Genesis where people lived to seven, eight, and 900 years and, and, and so forth. So you can imagine how the world's population will actually increase quite quickly. And you and I will reign over them as glorified man. We will rule over mortal man together with Christ. Now, this scripture that we've just read here where it says, one will be taken and the other left, this scripture is many times wrongly applied to the rapture of the church. And we have spoken about that previously before, not at great length, but let me spend a little time on that because this is very important. Instead of the righteous being taken, it's actually the wicked that are taken, and then the wicked are destroyed. We've just read that before. He's coming to uh, destroy the wicked from the earth. It's the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture 
of the church is not spoken about in the Old Testament or in the Gospels. And we're just reading here from Matthew chapter 24. That's in the Gospels. All right. So we can't do teaching from the Gospels about the rapture because the Gospels don't speak about the rapture. There's just one couple of indications here or there. Uh, but other than that, there is no teaching in the Old Testament or in the Gospels. The teaching doesn't on the rapture doesn't start until Paul the Apostle arrives and uh, he had the revelation about the church age. He had the revelation about the rapture and he called it the mystery. Why does he call it a mystery? Because in the Old Testament, it wasn't spoken about. Uh, in the Gospels, it wasn't spoken about. You see, the 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 church is, a, is an entity, and the church age is a time frame, including the rapture, was all part of the mystery, and it wasn't spoken about, and, and, and it's almost like, you know, it's in your outline. We should almost turn that sentence around. The fact that it's not spoken about in the Old Testament, it remained a mystery. It's a truth that just wasn't spoken about. But when Paul the Apostle came along, he said that God has revealed it to him by his Spirit to us and to the Apostles. Remember the scripture that I quoted earlier on, and I believe it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, and it's not in your outline, but where Paul says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And he quoted from an Old Testament passage. And then he said, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. It's the mystery that he spoke about. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. What's that? That's the rapture. It was part of the mystery. The whole church age was part of the mystery. Remember, just before Jesus ascended to heaven and his disciples uh, came to him and they kept asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He says, you guys get busy evangelizing. <laughs> Do you see the connectedness there? That's why when I hear teaching on end times, and, uh, and people are saying, oh, you know, God's judging the world, and, and then, uh-oh, they don't understand the dispensations, because we're still in the age of grace. Yes, stuff happens here or there. There's a, you know, there is a sowing and there's a reaping and there's a, a few isolated incidents uh, uh, going on where, you know, in the, in the book of, uh, book of um, Acts where Herod was dealt to, uh, and he died because he claimed to be God. And, uh, and, you know, there was the Ananias and the Sapphirus and some of these people. There's a few isolated incidents, but as a whole, we're in the age of grace. And then we're flowing into the seven-year tribulation when stuff will really fly loose, and then it'll all come to a culmination when Jesus returns and really deals to the wicked people. 
So as I say, in terms of understanding the dispensations, the times, the seasons, and where things are, um, you know, I mean, it's just not good when, you know, people get on television after an earthquake, earthquake and say, oh, God's judging the city, you know. And you know what I mean? Uh, there's just a misunderstanding there. And uh, God, it doesn't do us any favor with the world. When we're preaching, we're saying, yes, judgment is coming. But now God will save you if you repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So again, the mystery, which included the church, included the church age, included the rapture of the church, which is actually the finishing of the church age, was a mystery in the Old Testament was a mystery even in the Gospels because technically Jesus Christ operated through the Gospels still in Old Testament, still in Jewish time until he died on the cross, he rose from the dead and that ushered in Gentile time, that ushered in the church. So to teach on the rapture from the Gospels will inevitably get us messed up. Um, because it's not speaking about the rapture. People say, what about the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins? Not speaking about Christians. Okay, that's all I can say. We haven't got time to drill down into that. But I think we have stated clearly uh, the reasoning why we will be emphatically stated when it says that one will be taken, one will be left. It's the wicked that are taken and the righteous are left. And as I say, you listen to a lot of end-time teaching that turn this around, say the, the, you know, the, the righteous are taken um, and, and the wicked are left. It's, it's, it's not like that. Now, Jesus destroys the kings and their armies at Armageddon. So in Revelation chapter 16, we have reference to a place called Armageddon. Everybody's heard about Armageddon. Hollywood's made sure that Armageddon was mentioned, made movies about it, but forget all of that, okay? As I said before, you know, when Hollywood gets his claws on it, <laughs> it'll mess it up for sure. So let's go back to the word. Let the word speak loudest. Uh, Revelation 16, verse 12, then the sixth angel put out his bowl on the great river of Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now remember, in terms of judgments, there are three major deals going on. First of all, the seals that Jesus opened off the scroll, all seven, stuff happening on the earth. Then seven trumpets blown, stuff happening on the earth. And then seven bowls are poured out, uh, and stuff happening on the earth. This is now the sixth bowl that's poured out on the great river Euphrates, and its water dries up so that the way of the kings from the east will be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are the spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And in verse 16 says, and they gathered them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. So Euphrates dries up. 
there's a massive army coming from the east. There's another one that's come down from the north and from different parts of the world. Armies coming together, all converging on one place, and that place is called Armageddon. Armageddon, it is believed that uh, the word comes from uh, the name of a hill and the name of a city called Megiddo. And uh, Megiddo is an ancient city that was built on the hill of Megiddo, which is in, in northern Israel. Uh, if you look at the map of Israel and you've got Haifa, the city, and Tel Aviv, you aim for the middle, come slightly inland, you've got this place there called um, Megiddo. And there's a valley there. There's a vast expanse. In fact, uh, uh, there is that, that hill there, <laughs> they've only got, you know, in one translation it says a mountain. In fact, they've really, they've got mountains, but most of those hills are sort of gently sloping hills and plains. Um, and uh, the, the valley that's there below that hill is called the Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of Estralon. And if you search for, for that place on, on Google Maps, you will absolutely find it. The plain is some 40 kilometers long. It's got some width to it. Um, and uh, it's been said, now I'm not saying that this is historically 100% verifiable, but it's been said that more battles have been fought on that spot alone, and it's a huge expanse, than in any other part of the world. Um, Joshua fought a battle way back in the Old Testament. Saul fought a battle. Joshua won. Saul fought a battle, lost it, and he died in that very area. Um, General Allenby, if my memory serves me correctly, in the First World War in 1918 fought a battle there and defeated the Ottoman uh, army right there. And in fact, it was a decisive army which basically... Uh, dealt to them, uh, and that was the defeat of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Some uh, Egyptian king had also fought there, and one of them said, this place is worth a thousand cities, meaning that if I can fight here in this setting and defeat armies, then I'm going to get a thousand cities. So, so that's the place that is pinpointed to bring all the armies together from the east, from the north, from, from different parts around the world to gather them together, as it says here uh, in verse 14, we've just read it, the battle of the great day of the Lord God Almighty. And even though demon spirits have gone out to deceive the nations, to bring their armies together, it's really in a sense doing God's job, and God lets them do it because when they're all gathered together, Jesus will deal to every single one of them. There will not be a single person coming away from this battle, a single army man, a single captain, a, a single general, or the kings that are there will all be wiped out. And uh, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Who is his army? We are part of that. So even though Antichrist and the kings of the earth and their armies gather at Armageddon, 
And their intention is that they wipe out Israel and Jerusalem. But when Jesus turns up, they will turn against Jesus and try to fight against Jesus. I mean, I say, how dumb can you get? Expecting that you're going to have any success with that. These will make war with the Lamb. That's in Revelation 17, verse 14. These, these people that are gathered there will make war with the Lamb. Lamb, capital L, reference to Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And that's reference to us. We are with him. We are called, we are chosen, we are faithful. So remain faithful, my brother, my sister. Okay? When earlier on it spoke about that he himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. In fact, let's reread that uh, portion here in Revelation 14, verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And presumably that's outside the city of Jerusalem. And blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. So this is amazing. The winepress of God's wrath is reference, it's figurative language to speak about throwing all the armies and all the wicked people from the round, around the world into that place. And wine presses of old are different to wine presses of today in the old days. In fact, some places they still do that. They got a large vat. It, it is typically a wooden vat. And they throw all the grapes inside in clusters. And then a couple of three people, depending on the size of this thing, go in there and stomp around and stomp it all down to separate the, 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 the juice, the grape juice, which is then fed off, and they make wine with that, and what's left behind is grape seed and grape skin and, and so forth. Uh, it reminds me a little bit when I grew up. We didn't have a wine press. Uh, uh, my father made uh, cider. He had, a, he had a mechanical press, but when it came to sauerkraut making. Now, how many of you know what sauerkraut is? Oh, it's that lovely stuff, and it's very healthy. It's very healthy. Our family there, my mother had a big uh, stone vessel, stone, hewn out of stone, about yay wide, so long, about so deep. And, and she did heavy-duty cutting of cabbages and threw the cabbage in there. My brother and I, my brother and I were like, like this. We went in there. And our, our mother did wash our feet before we got in there, just in case you're wondering. We did go in there. It was our job to stomp around and to stomp down the sauerkraut, okay? Now, <laughs> I don't know where that comes in, but it's, we're speaking about the, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God, figurative language, where God's stomping around, not physically, 
but is stomping with his wrath on all the people that are gathered together, in particular those who have mistreated Israel over and over and over. And you could imagine that media moguls and media people and TV news announcers, which is so anti-Semitic, so anti-Israel, will be thrown in there as well. God says, I've had enough of you people mistreating my chosen people, the people of Israel. Even though the Bible speaks about, in fact, Paul speaks about it in Romans, that Israel is a nation was cut off from the, from the olive tree uh, for a period. And, and God crafted us in, the Gentiles, crafted us in. We were, we were a wild branch grafted into, into God's uh, roots, so to speak, by covenant. And Paul says that, that cutting off of the Jewish people is only temporary. When the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled, God will regraft the Jewish nation back in again, and they will experience his blessing from that moment forward. So the grapes are the unrighteous people gathered there to be destroyed. Jesus will destroy both man and beast that are gathered there, and blood will flow in a stream 180 miles long. What would that be? I'm not all that... Flashing in the area of math is that, what, 250, 280 kilometers of river that runs that long. And the blood will flow high to a horse's bridle. Now, all of you know what a horse looks like with its, uh, with its mouth about, about somewhere here. A river of blood flowing. And the tragedy is this, friends. Seeing we're so close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It could be the blood of some of our friends, some of our acquaintances, and even of some of our family who refuse to get saved. People that will mourn when they see Jesus turning up physically, but people that have never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. So there is very clear, very clear understanding there from the scriptures what all of that looks like. The opening scripture that we read that Jesus will take out out of the whole armies gathered together at Armageddon. He will take out the Antichrist. He will take out the false prophet and throw them into the lake of fire. As the Bible says, when he comes, it'll be a sword coming out of his mouth. And with it, he will kill all of those that are there. Zechariah chapter 14 gives us additional understanding that there will be a plague released on them. Not exactly what that plague will be, but it says, while they're standing up, their eyes in their sockets will dissolve. Their tongue will dissolve. Their flesh, while they're standing up, will dissolve. 
and uh, the blood, as we've said, will run down. It's said that uh, in terms of all the hardware and the wealth that gets concentrated together in that spot, that for seven, eight months, the Jewish people will pick up things of value. And even when you consider the numbers that we're dealing with, which is in the multiplied millions, even imagining that, uh, you know, it just even some of their jewelry of what they might have, let alone the hardware that they will bring with them, as I say, it'll take seven, eight months to pick all of that up. So, last point, um, letter E, it says, Satan will be bound and locked up for a thousand years. And it is a given here that along with him, all the demon spirits, even though they're not mentioned, but uh, if Satan's bound, all the demons are bound. Revelation 20, we've just finished chapter 19, we're coming out into chapter 20. We're now at the starting point of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which is a dispensation all of its own. It's the last dispensation of human history on the earth as we know it until the new heaven and the new earth uh, is going to be made. So Revelation 20 verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Still John speaking. He says, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And of course, that then opens the way for the millennial reign of Christ to begin. Jesus will rule from Jerusalem, which will be the capital of the world, and we will rule and reign with him. We'll hope to touch on that to a certain extent in the next session, next week. Imagine a world where there's no death. Imagine a world where there's no demon spirits roaming the earth to cause strife and division and deceiving people and all of that. Well, that's what the millennial reign of Christ will look like. And that's probably as much as what we have time for today and as much as what I'd like to cover. I know that some of the previous sessions, it's been sort of taking a bit more time than what we would, but I'm trying to get these things out to you in chunks uh, so that it makes sense. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I said this before. And Vanessa and I, as young believers, we heard the end time message. It's marked us for life. We're living our life with a sense of that, you know, Jesus could come any day, but he also said, occupy till I come. So we're not stopping all sorts of planning and things. We will occupy till he comes. But when he comes, the Bible says his reward is with him. And what we do in this life, in terms of works and sacrificing and, and laboring, and to keep going, even, the, even in the heat of the battle, when, even when things get hard, especially when things get hard, we will be rewarded in the life to come during the millennium and throughout eternity. 
So make no mistake, my friend. God sees everything that you do. And Jesus says that even a glass of water that you give to one of his little ones, you will by no means miss out on your reward. Thanks for watching Victory Christian Center. For more content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or you can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes or Google Podcasts. Check out our website at victory.net.nz. We'll see you again soon.